Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bioworks. My name is Aaron, and today I'm joined by David Sable, who is a portfolio manager for the Special Situations Life Sciences Fund and lectures in the biology department at Columbia University. David, thanks for being here. I wanted to start off by asking, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to your current work? Sure. Uh, actually, uh, did my undergraduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, studied finance and healthcare finance. Uh, did not think about uh, healthcare or medicine at all as an undergraduate until my senior year when I realized I was going to graduate from a pretty good college without any science background. So I, uh, for the heck of it, I took the pre-med curriculum all at once and uh, doubled down and went to medical school after that. So I went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, did a obstetrics and gynecology residency at uh, New York Hospital Cornell, did a reproductive endocrinology fellowship at uh, Brigham and Women's, where I did some work at Harvard Medical School, and went into uh, in vitro fertilization as a clinician. Practiced medicine from uh, 1990 through 2003, started two IVF programs, started a reproductive genetics company. And uh, at that time, being 43 years old and having two young children who didn't know who their father was, because I was never home, decided to take a sabbatical. And that sabbatical is now in its, that one year sabbatical is now in its 19th year. I got involved in uh, doing some work at Deutsche Bank, doing some healthcare investing, first consulting, and then running a, uh, running a fund. And then I was uh, recruited through a headhunter to the firm where I'm in now, where I invest both in public companies and in private companies, including running a venture capital fund dedicated just to in vitro fertilization, which was my old medical, my old medical, uh, old medical field. Uh, along the way, I got asked to uh, teach a course at Columbia, which has become one of my true loves. And we launched the course Entrepreneurship and Biotechnology in 2011. And I teach that every two or three semesters at Columbia. Gotcha. That's some, that's some really interesting stuff. Yeah. I think... <laughs> Not a typical career path. No, no, it's definitely very atypical. And that's actually what I wanted to ask about kind of next. So I would say that a lot of portfolio managers probably have, you know, MBAs or like more business oriented backgrounds. But it sounds like from what you said that you kind of have more of like a medical school background and like um, then you kind of transition and transitioned into managing healthcare portfolios after that. Did you feel like you were well equipped to do so from a business perspective? Well, you know, the uh, combination of the Wharton undergrad program, which is what I graduated from uh, way, way back, as well as when I was a doctor, you know, I ran a major hospital department. I started two companies myself. Uh, you know, the basics of business are a lot simpler than the basics of, you know, applied science, which healthcare and medicine is. So uh, you just kind of pick up the vocabulary along the way. Would it have been beneficial to take another two years and do an MBA? Probably. But frankly, I think you can pick up most of this, most of what's taught in a business curriculum outside of business school. There's a lot of ways of learning that. So if you learn the basic 
vocabulary of finance, the basic vocabulary of accounting, things like management, marketing, economics are a combination of book learning and experience. And there's a lot of ways to end up where I ended up other than studying business in school, working at an investment bank, going back and getting an MBA or, uh, and then going to it from that point. There's nothing wrong with going out and just going right into entrepreneurship, given a you know, kind of a basic vocabulary on the operations of whatever you're going into. And that includes healthcare. Gotcha. So yeah, I kind of wanted to transition a little bit more into the work you do now. So um, sure. I was wondering if you could tell us a little, a little bit about the Special Situations Life Sciences Innovation Fund. Well, the SEC has certain rules about who we can talk about the specific of a fund to. And my hands are tied a little bit there because since we uh, we're, we're what's called a registered investment advisor, we can't be seen as soliciting investors. And the SEC interprets are talking about the specifics of our funds as a general solicitation. So I'm happy to talk about healthcare investing. I'm happy to talk about various ways of doing it in the way, in the general way I approach it, or I would teach someone to approach it without talking about the fund itself. And uh, it sounds like I'm being very cautious only because the SEC's job is a very good one. They want to protect uh, people from being brought into sophisticated investment vehicles without having the background for it. So uh, I have to, in a little ways, dodge your question. That said, if we want to talk in general about how one invests in healthcare, the different ways of doing it, different skills that you want to bring to bear on it, or the ways that you can do it outside of the specific fund that I work in, happy to do that. That's, that's all within the rules. So, uh, you know, what, what uh, many of my colleagues within this field do, it's, you know, we're kind of weaving a lot of different languages, you know, together. You know, there's the knowledge of basic science. There's the knowledge of healthcare itself. You know, if you're building a company that's going to solve a problem within the auspices of healthcare. How do you how do you figure out if they're doing it right or not? How do you figure if the uh, drug that's being developed or the medical device that's being developed, the software that's being developed, maybe it's an alternative delivery system. And you make sure that something that's gonna you know, kind of be embraced by the marketplace, especially if they're asking us to invest money well in advance of any revenue you look at the biotechnology area, which has attracted billions and billions of dollars of investment capital, often years before the drug is going to be approved and be in the marketplace. So how do you make a kind of a rational investing decision on something like that? You know, it's different than, say, a software company or a, uh, you know, it's like a company that's developed an app that may be on the market very quickly or maybe already something that's downloadable, people can start using it. There you've got real world metrics to measure. How many people are using the app? How often, how often do they use it? How long do they use it? Does the app generate revenue either by directing people to advertising 
or by people paying subscriptions, things of that sort. These are real hard business numbers that you could incorporate into an investment decision or, from my point of view, into a funding decision when you triage the capital that people have given to you to invest and make more money. Healthcare is a little trickier. You know, it's like some of the things that we talk about in my course in biotechnology, come up with an idea. It may be a way, means of developing targets that you can use a, uh, an antibody platform for. It may be a specific target that you've developed a drug for, whether it's a small molecule, an antibody, uh, maybe a cell therapy, maybe a gene therapy. Maybe it's something like using very advanced uh, applications like CRISPR. To do that, you've got to do work usually in silico. You've got to model it on a computer. You've got to put it into a cell system, maybe a cell culture system first, and then into animals, mice, rats, whatever. And then ultimately you need to, uh, you need to get it into human beings. This takes years to develop. Got to run experiments, accrue the data, publish the data, bring it around to investors to show that you are what we call building value. And then you've got to start dealing with the FDA, a whole other set of rules that you've got to play by, because the FDA will determine when you can eventually use the drug in a human being. When you've done all your safety data, all your cell culture data, all your animal data, and you're ready to do your first human experiment, you fill out a thousands of page application called an IND, investigative new drug application. And you've got to get a sign off from the FDA before you can give the first dose to the first person. By this point, you've invested potentially millions of dollars just to get here. And you're still years away from being able to market the drug. So, Someone like myself, who's got medical background, background in biostatistics, background in science, and also a background in reading balance sheets, putting together deal and you know, deal and transaction structures, and take all that knowledge, put it together, and say, all right, is this company worth giving a million dollars to, two million dollars to, five million dollars to? Knowing that the money's going to run out at some still well before the product is ready for market. So that's kind of what we do. That's what I do, that's what other fund managers do. We're backed up with teams of analysts. The analysts also bring business knowledge to bear, science knowledge to bear. So it's really kind of a, you know, kind of a weaving a mosaic of knowledge, ultimately with the goal of getting, for example, getting a drug on the market that's gonna help people that have nothing to help them with now. So it's a uh, different way of approaching healthcare back when I used to see patients one at a time. In a way, it's potentially a way to help more people uh, have more of a uh, more of an impact into the healthcare world than I could do in a one-to-one -one patient care setting. So it was a very long-winded answer to what I hope well, I started to answer the question. No, that, that was really great. I think something that I'm interested in asking more about is you mentioned how it's like a really long process before you can start to see like a drug or like a product 
being used like in humans or even like getting to market. Um, so I guess something that I wanted to ask was like when you as an investor and like your team of analysts are deciding what to invest in, knowing that you will probably won't see results for like a very long time and you do have to like invest like a significant amount of capital. I guess what are some things that you look for to like kind of give you an idea that this will be perhaps, you know, like, um, like a profit producing investment? So first thing you look at is what problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, that's like, I, I try to look at the, as an investor, I try to look at the company the same way the entrepreneur or the co-founders do. Okay, so what problem do they want to solve and who are they going to affect? So we start trying to get an idea of how big a problem this is. And then what is their idea? There's a concept that we talk about in class called, you know, some straightforward ones, proof of concept. You know, how do you show me early that you're making a journey from an idea to something tangible that works? And what are the steps that you have to start passing that show me that you're, you're making progress? So rather than think, okay, well, you know, it's, for example, you've got a, a target in Maybe you have experiments indicating that this target is a route to a treatment for a drug that's not being very well taken care of. Okay, let's, let's, let's use Alzheimer's disease as an example. You know, millions of people have a terrible disease and we don't have drugs that work very well. Well, so you've got this idea, and maybe it's based on uh, just experiments where uh, the drug local or the target localizes to an area that deteriorates in people with Alzheimer's disease and you've built a model, maybe it's a mouse model, that kind of correlates with that. So you say, okay, we've got this target, it's in the area that deteriorates with Alzheimer's disease. We feel that if we can design a protective agent, localize it to that area of the brain, Maybe this is something that could work really well in protecting this enormous market. And for half a million dollars, we could design a combination of safety data and very well-run studies on mice and maybe another model that shows that we can do that. Now, if we can design a drug for Alzheimer's disease, that's worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. But let's put half a million dollars into getting taking a first step into a live system. So they come to a group like me, like my group, or any any investor group, not my specific one. And they'll say, here's our plan. We've identified this target. We may have maybe we have a patent that protects our working in that target. And we've got a family of molecules that we know that can localize there. And we need to show it. So they may show me some very baseline basic science experiments that have been done so far. Say we want to take it into a mouse model, or maybe a, maybe a primate model, or maybe another animal model, each of which takes us a step towards, you know, going from a target to a you know, field. We say, well, we actually have a drug. We have something that we can stick into a live animal system. It's not going to harm anything. The animal will metabolize it in such a way and it will stay active long enough to get to its target and do its job. Maybe I'm just investing on that premise and 
an investor like myself and maybe a group of maybe 10 other investors will each put in a relatively small amount of money to get that company through the through that proof of concept. And that's maybe the thesis that we'll invest a small amount of our total portfolio in that particular company. And then we just say, okay, go do it. Go run the experiments. Come back when the proof of concept has been proven. If the, if the experiment doesn't work, well, then we've lost a small amount of money. Experiment does, does work, then they come back and say, okay, what do we do with this new piece of evidence? What can we build off of that? How much does it cost us to take that next step? And maybe the next step is getting all the experiments needed to be able to apply to the FDA to do a first dose in humans type thing. Maybe that requires $5 million or $10 million. There, the original investors may re-up, depending on how much money they put into something like that. And the entrepreneur, the founder, goes out and meets other funds, maybe they do later stage investing. And in this stepwise process, you build up over time, you know, creation of value. Oh, at some point, you stop being a private company, you become a public company. And in a public company, you can sell stock, you can sell in the marketplace on a stock, stock exchange. And then people that invested early, they may be able to exit their investments well short of the company having a product. They may be able to exit there at a much higher value than when they invested when it was such an early stage. So there's a lot of ways of getting in and out of individual investments. Each of them goes through the same type of, you know, kind of what we call due diligence. You investigate the background basic science. You investigate the people that are doing the work, make sure they know what they're doing. You investigate the experiments that they're planning. You go into the biostatistics. Okay, how likely is this going to show what it is that they think it's going to show? How expensive is it going to be to run these trials? You kind of, you really, you don't let anybody get away with any assumption without double checking on it. And then you say, all right, I'm investing in an experiment. The experiment works. This company's probably worth 10 times what I'm investing in right now. I may not be able to exit that investment if it's a venture capital investment in a private company. But still, ultimately, they are what we call building or creating value. That's what we do. We invest in the creation of value with the hopes that we'll be able to you know, help a project along that will help humanity. So we're kind of a mission-oriented healthcare investors. And my limited partners, they want to make profits out of it. So at the same time, we'll find a way to exit out of the investment profitably at some point. Gotcha. So it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more of like, a marathon of investing so like at every checkpoint you kind of look for some like key metrics to see like whether you want to continue like you know like investing in this company rather than and it would be pretty unlikely for like a fund to just like throw a huge lump sum like amount of money at the beginning right well it depends on what their investment strategy is you know seed investors and early stage investors do put reasonable amount of money into a, the uh, project at the beginning. But we are seeing some, particularly in things like biotechnology, we're seeing seed, you know, seed level investing 
so potentially in the millions to ten millions of dollars. These are very big ideas with huge marketplaces. And the investors feel that the investment has been what we call de-risked, that there's a lot of boxes that have been checked along the way. Now, there are some investors that invest on the much shorter term. And that's usually when there's, it's easy to get into an investment and out of it. That's usually when it's in the public markets. So if it's something that you can buy stock in a stock, stock exchange, then you may have a company putting millions of dollars in all at once with the expectation that they'll be out in a year. So that, that type of thing does happen. It takes a lot of knowledge over the way, about the way stocks trade, as well as the ability to know the mechanics of investing in something and getting out of it very quickly. Uh, that's, that's another core competence that some people choose to build in this, in this you know, marketplace. Others don't. Some people do exclusively venture capital investing, which has a long, typical venture capital fund is a 10-year commitment. The public market funds, mutual funds, uh, hedge funds, uh, uh, things like uh, exchange traded funds or ETFs. These are things that you can get in and out of very quickly, but there's a very different risk tolerance, a very different need for liquidity. Liquidity means you can sell what it is that you buy. Sometimes you buy something that's private, you're gonna have it for an awfully long time. So you have to have both high conviction that there's a good likelihood that it's gonna work, and it's gotta be part of what we call a portfolio approach. It's not gonna be the only thing you invest in. Because even if you've got a really high probability of something working, these early stage investments, a lot of them can go to zero. So you've got to surround it with things that also with a good probability of working. Early stage investments that work out, you buy something originally with a valuation of five or $10 million, that goes to a billion dollar valuation. You've done very, very well with it. You know, very, very well for that. But of all those that are going to but all those companies that you can invest in, that five to $10 million stage, a lot of them aren't gonna make it. So uh, you have to invest in more than one. It's what we call portfolio management. Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess I wanted to pivot a little bit more to like your investing history, like specifically. Um, from what I've seen, like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of your past like investments, like are very focused on reproductive medicine. And I imagine that has to do with like your background as like a reproductive, like uh, endocrinologist in the past. So I guess, and earlier on, you did mention that like you also have been involved um, within reproductive medicine as like the board member of some companies and also like uh, founder of some co companies as well. So I guess my question here is kind of like, what role do you play in the companies that you invest in? Like, are you helping guide the research or is it more of you're just like, you know, the source of capital? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And for really for any investment, there's a spectrum from being totally passive. Your company has no idea who you are. <laughs> you, just, you just own stock or something. All the way to being very involved in strategic management and even sometimes in operations. And I've 
been very fortunate to be able to play all of those different roles in various companies along the way. You know, when you sit on the board of directors, whether it's a private company or a public company, you are you have a responsibility to the company itself. As an investor, I also have a responsibility to my investors and the people that to have money in the funds that I run. So we try to make sure that we're investing in really good stuff that has you know, a high probability of succeeding, as well as if we have an opportunity to uh, advise or make connections or you know, make introductions or you know, lend, lend your expertise, whether it's in clinical trial design, whether it's in you know, trying to predict where the field of reproductive medicine is going. You just kind of you know, try to help out where you can. Now, a lot of these things I do outside of boards and, out, frankly, outside of the companies that I'm invested in. I happen to just love the field of reproductive medicine. I think it's a very exciting one. And I'm, you know, frankly, if somebody's running a small company and has a question, they find they, they manage to find my email address and say, "Can I ask you a question?" You just say, "Sure." You know, it's uh, you know, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to know confidential information, and I'm certainly not going to share anyone's confidential information with anybody else. But if it's just a question, what do you think? You know, here's our idea. We're trying to develop this. What's your, you know, what's your take on it? I do. You know, I just happen to know a lot more about the market than a lot of people, and I'm happy to share that. These are things that anybody can figure out just by going online and putting the data together. It's just something we've done. So. Uh, yeah, you try to balance benefiting everybody, which I'm happy to do. Uh, sharing information, helping young entrepreneurs out, the same way people helped me out early in my career. And then if I'm actually involved professionally with the company, then, you know, to whatever extent I could be part of the full court press of making sure the thing works. You know, it's a, it's a great... Uh, it's a great way to still be involved in healthcare, short of actually seeing patients. Uh, so, you know, involved in a company and they're developing a product, I'm happy to be involved in their decision-making process as to how to uh, how to get it into market, how to, if it's a device, you know, which most devices are a combination of an energy source and a delivery system into the body. You know, it's like I did, you know, a decade and a half of surgery reproductive medicine. So I've been pretty much on the front lines there. I said, well, do you ever think of doing it this way? Do you ever think of designing this? Or do you ever think of merging this with this other product on the market that is halfway there to what you're trying to do? So it's a, it's a nice position to be in. And being, you know, kind of my home base, being you know, kind of a healthcare investor, gives me those opportunities to have those relationships. Uh, as well as, you know, many others do the same thing. It's, I guess I'm, I'm not unique in that way. There are a lot of people with core competences in cardiology or GI or neurology or in surgery, and they move into the managerial role or the oversight role of the board, or they'll sit on an advisory board, or they start their own companies, or they become investors. And it's a way of playing just a lot of different roles all at once. It's great because you know, any given day you can you can do a lot of different things, including you know, passive things, listening to others, to very active. And 
actually participated in the operations of the specific company. Gotcha. I actually wanted to ask a little bit about something you mentioned at the end there about how like you might recommend like a certain company to like perhaps like look at the technology that another company is using to see if that will help. Is that like a frequent recommendation that you would make for like sort of a partnership or perhaps like recommending like the another product for a company that you're already invested in? Well, it's the most recommendations like that are just kind of like looking at something that's out there that anybody can see. You know, see what kind of ideas can you take from robotics or uh, automation or uh, you know, using AI or machine learning or a certain type of way of incorporating software or taking a system that's open air and closing it so that you can work in a different environment without exposing cells to, uh, you know, to the laboratory in general. They're really kind of basic ideas that are not rocket science in any way, it's just that maybe something that someone hasn't thought about. You can take it to that next level and look at an organization that's implemented something already, they're using it, and you know, reach out to that company. Say, you know, we're doing something fairly similar. Could we talk to you about it? And a lot of businesses are very happy to talk about what they do as long as it's not a competitive issue, or to think about maybe collaborating on something where they can take something off the shelf that they developed and license it out to somebody else or build a joint venture with someone else or build a company with them. There are lots of different ways of combining ideas or intellectual property, uh, collaborating in a way that's mutually profitable, or just saying, here, you'd be surprised how many people have developed products or platforms that are more than happy to just say, oh, let me, let me tell you what we did. And you know, go run with the idea. If you, if you want to talk about it later on, feel free. There's a lot of that kind of give and take in the business world, uh, sometimes not all that formal. And it's, it's a great thing to be able to be a part of. Of course, everybody wants to protect their own ideas and protect their own you know, things that they've developed. They don't just give them away. On the same hand, a lot of the basic logic behind some ideas is not something that you need to try to protect. You know, it's like, well, here's the, here's the idea behind it. See what you can do with it. Uh, and you're not, really not giving anything away because you're not going to give you're not going to give people access to the specifics of the stuff that you've got uh, patent protected. If you want to share it, you can license that out. And some of the stuff is, you know, in intellectual property, there's a concept of non-obviousness. You know, a lot of the ideas are brilliant ideas, but they're ideas that probably many people have arrived at in parallel. You may reach out to someone that's arrived at it, that's putting it to work, and they're happy to share it with you because it's up to you to go take that idea and run with it and put it, you know, you'll make it work for whatever you're developing. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different ways of you know, kind of putting this into play. Anyway, what else can I tell you? Yeah, wait, that's actually really interesting to hear because um, I know in like academic research, it's like very common to like collaborate everywhere. But I've always thought of like, um, like, you know, industrial sector and biotech, like as a little bit more competitive. So it's interesting to hear that, like, 
it's like very possible and quite frequent for like mutually profitable collaborations to happen. Yes, no, they can. They can happen in all sorts of ways, and the opposite is true too. There are some things that companies not going to let you near it. Yeah, they really want to protect everything that they've done, every idea that's gone into it, which is fine. You know, it's like we're we're all grown ups. We we do things the way we want to, and at some point, you reach. You know, there are times when, in your development process, you don't really want to talk about it. Yeah, you don't want anybody else potentially arriving at what it is that you're developing, and you've invested a lot of your own time and effort, and your investors have put a lot of money into it, and the right thing to do is protect it. And you know, there are questions. There are phone calls I'll get a lot. Or someone will want to talk about a company that I'm involved in, and I'll say, you know, it's not a time I could really talk about it, and it's all in good faith, and there's no, he、uh, has no problem. I never mind someone asking, as long as they don't mind me saying no, because a lot of times the right thing to do is say no. Gotcha. Well, I wanted to pivot off of the research point a little bit.、Um, I read in like one of your recent,、uh, one of your Forbes articles that. You've received a lot of startup pitches for using AI in embryo selection, so I guess this for me this seems like a relatively like new research field because I imagine people are you know still developing you know their models and like whatnot to continue like optimizing it. I guess my question here was kind of like how closely do the creation of like IVF and like other reproductive medicine startups how closely do they follow the advances in IVF technology? Well, there's IVF going on for about forty years. It keeps getting better, but it's like a lot of healthcare tech, you know, technology-based healthcare areas. It's making a journey from the analog world to the digital world. You know, when I went to medical school, you know, 1980s,、uh, lung cancer was a tumor in the lung. You know, it's like it's it was a story. Uh, you can take a piece of that tumor and you can put it under a microscope and you can stratify it into different appearances, and then you can correlate some of those appearances with different type of activity, which may make you treat one different than the other. But it was still a very imprecisely categorized and approached part of the world, and that was true of all of this. Now, fast forward to now, and we've got a combination of The elucidation of the human genome, the you know fact that we have tremendously fast computer processing with cheap storage and limitless memory, and suddenly we can feed tremendous amounts of very digital data, like sequencing, into enormous databases and make some very data-driven analyses and decisions. So fields like immunology. And oncology, cancer, have really benefited enormously, and they are very far along in that analog to digital journey. That's helped them because it helps make product developments faster and more rational, more predictable, which in turn makes risk management on the investing side easier. So venture capitalists are pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into immunology and oncology and other areas like that. Women's health. And reproductive medicine are a little bit further behind in making that analog to digital journey. So our diagnoses, you know, things like premenstrual syndrome, 
preeclampsia, infertility, are still story-based diagnoses. And the treatments that we use have not been, they've had tremendous science put into them, but only kind of mediocre engineering. And when you take an egg out of the human body and you put it into the laboratory, it undergoes a series of procedures, usually done manually by scientists called embryologists. Some of them are good at it, some of them are not that good at it. Every lab has its own protocols, its own procedures, its own way of, you know, something may stay in the incubator for an hour in one lab and three hours in another. The media may be different the way the incubation takes place from one lab to the next. We've not done a great job of process optimizing it in an engineering sense. And one of the joys of teaching by class is that at least half the class every year had engineering backgrounds. This way I can kind of pretend I'm an engineer, even though I'm not trained as one, because they've kind of whipped me into shape, whipped me into this respect for data, respect for reproducibility of experiments, and really looking long and hard at the way we use statistics. That's helped me a lot, frankly, as an investor as well. Going back to reproductive medicine, we're now trying to bring some of that engineering discipline into things like in vitro fertilization. And one of the ways we do that is by taking some of the decision points that we've made traditionally over the years using kind of our own home-brewed methods. For example, choosing which embryos should go back has been done by a process where we, you know, the embryologist looks under the microscope at the embryos and uses some fairly straightforward criteria to decide what's has a higher chance of turning into a pregnancy and what doesn't. So the, in the uh, topic that you brought up, using AI to help us make these decisions, but we're taking advanced optical and imaging systems from things like meteorology or defense departments and attaching them to the microscope that we use to look at embryos. And then we tell the advanced optical system to learn everything it can about these embryos, things that we can't as humans. There's only so many things that we can see, can, can glean from looking at a, you know, at a multi-celled organism. They all kind of look alike to us, but to one of these extremely advanced optical systems, they pick up things that we don't. Then we start taking hundreds of thousands or millions of IVF cycles worth of data, feeding into the computer, and tell the optical system, okay, go in there and figure out when we're making good decisions and when we're not. And that comes up with an algorithm that guides us into making a better decision about what embryos can be put back. Now, the reality in my own assessment of all these projects is that the benefit we get in terms of the metrics that I care about, which is how quickly do we get people pregnant and how, and how much money do we have to have them spend to get pregnant and how much physical pain do they have to go through all things that i want to minimize how further how much further along does replacing the experienced embryologist with the algorithm and so far it hasn't been that impressive but if we take an ai system and we go to the 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 different nodes in a complex IVF procedure, and we optimize every one of those the way we're optimizing embryo selection, then we may be able to make a real leap 
up in optimizing the overall system, standardizing it, and then automating it. Take a 50% pregnancy rate, and make it a 70% pregnancy rate. It would take away all this intra-operator variability, bring some real discipline into the process. Suddenly, we can, we can provide an in vitro fertilization cycle at a fraction of the cost of previous with a higher probability of an outcome. When you have that high probability of an outcome, you can apply risk management data to it, and suddenly the insurance companies have no problem insuring it, or even credit companies providing ways of mitigating the risk, which allows suddenly millions of people to go into the, into the treatment arena, where right now we're treating hundreds of thousands. So we can really start bringing a technique that works really well and make it work great, make it more predictable, make it cheaper. And in my own modeling, you know, right now we create about half a million babies a year worldwide using IVF. I think we can get that to 10 or 20 million without a lot of increased cost. That's a great thing to be able to do. If we can do that in IVF, Maybe we can do it in a lot of other areas of medicine, some areas which are way ahead of reproductive medicine, some of which are lagging behind. So that's kind of the way I see the future of healthcare. And that guides a lot of the decisions on how I triage my own time and my capital that investors you know, entrust in me and things of that sort. So it all kind of ties together. Gotcha. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um... I think this actually pivots well into another idea that you've written about. It's sort of like the democratization of IVF. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like the need for more accessible IVF. Sure. Well, there's 130 million babies born worldwide per year. And the worldwide prevalence of infertility is approximately 9% or so. It's been estimated up to 15, 20%. I try to use conservative numbers. And that translates into about 12 million families worldwide every year that can't have a child without help. Right now, like I said, we're making about half a million. Those half a million are usually wealthy people. They're usually in developed economies. And uh, they're people that can afford to write a check for 10 or $20,000 out of pocket to have access to this. Now. There are some things that are universal. If you're hungry, thirsty, or in pain, you should have access to food, water, or a means of relieving your pain. And I think that an inability to have a child is up there with those as well. So and these are not things that you know, necessarily are lend itself to a certain socioeconomic class. You know, as a practitioner, I saw people from all over the world and all over every possible economic strata. And the pain of not being able to have a child is extremely real for all of them. So the democratization in that standpoint means if you need IVF, it's available to you. So in order to do that, we have to make it cheaper. We need to make it work better. We need to make it easier to implement, not requiring a lot of intense work from extremely highly trained specialists. So there's a lot of work on a, in a lot of different ways to get there. In a way, it's a microcosm for the democratization of healthcare, which has been approached in a lot of different ways all over the world. 
IVF has been kind of a laggard in that because since it treats something that's not fatal, and since it's usually done outside of a hospital in private independent clinics, it's evolved to a marketplace. I used to try to make the comparison. It's as if we had a hotel industry where we had nothing but the Ritz-Carlton. You know, if you wanted to stay in a hotel, it cost you $1,000 a night. Other than that, you have to find someone's couch to sleep on where you didn't travel. What we're trying to do is we want to create the Holiday Inns and the Hiltons and the Sheridans and the, and the Airbnbs, all places where you can get eight hours of sleep in a clean bathroom for a much lower price point. That's the democratization of the area of healthcare. It's something where it's available to everybody and not just a certain select group. And that may involve making it easier for the insurance industry to insure it. It definitely involves making it cheaper to deliver. It makes it more difficult to monopolize. So that, you know, right now, it's great. The IVF that exists now in the world is, is superbly done by very highly trained people. Problem is, there's only so many of them to go around. And if we're going to let the, the next 90% of people, the millions of people that aren't being treated now, give them access to it, we need to find a way to have the super skilled people overseeing thousands of cycles a year instead of just a few hundred. So there's a lot of steps involved in democratizing an area of healthcare. And from the point of view of being of working with entrepreneurs and working with seed capital and funding, what you're trying to do is you're just trying to identify the best ideas and then help them grow. So it's, it's a way of being involved in one area, the delivery of the care, by intervening in another area, helping the entrepreneurs and the starters and the co-founders. Gotcha. So does that mean you kind of see like the solution to a lack of accessibility as sort of like an entrepreneurship problem or is it more of like a research problem or more of a government policy or perhaps like some combination of all three? It's really all of the above. You know, it's like the, you know, to, to really solve this area of medicine, we still need basic science. So we need a priority put on reproductive medicine research. We need lots of engineering. We need lots of early stage inventing which means risk capital because you have years before you're going to make money from it. So that's venture funding. You need a means of marketing it to a larger group of people. So you need operators. You need people that are going to you know, not only invent the you know, maybe robotics and the AI applications. You need people that are going to put up brick and mortar clinics and find ways of bringing the you know, the access closer to where people live. Right now, IVF is really focused on all the big urban centers. If you're in a rural area, it's very difficult to access. So maybe we need to invent ways to let local OBGYNs do some of that work or figure out ways of shipping you know, biospecimens all around the country and storing them safely. So there's a lot of, so many different areas, you know, different ways of doing it as well as putting into a process an oversight mechanism to make sure it's all done you know, safely, securely, and uh, you know, like all of healthcare, you gotta have standards. 
Gotcha. So it sounds like from what you're saying, like IVF is going to be like an incredibly rapidly expanding market with like a lot of need for like increased accessibility. So I actually wanted to ask about something else that you wrote about how like in comparison to like other therapies like gene therapy, like using IVF with say pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, like that doesn't attract right now, at least it doesn't attract as much money for research and business development. I wanted to ask, like, why do you think this is the case? And, like, does that mean, like, we need to invest more in the IVF market? Well, uh, I this is an area close to my own heart. <laughs> so we, uh, we co-founded a company called ReproGenetics in the year 2000 based on work that really, uh, I'm, as the doctor, I didn't do the heavy lifting. These were the scientists I worked with, guys like Jacques Cohn and Santiago Monet, who, who invented a means to biopsy an embryo and do genetic analysis on that. And in the beginning, we would biopsy the embryo and we would check for XY, 13, 18, and 21, five chromosomes. It was like a mini karyotyping. And doing that, we could pick out most of the reasons why embryos didn't implant. Or we could segregate the embryos in families that were at risk for having an X-linked genetic disease something like Huntington's disease. And there, it was a pretty primitive way we would do it. We would just put the female embryo back because we know that the male embryos were the only ones that were at risk for getting the disease. Now, fast forward to now, and we can sequence an embryo before, you know, in between the time it was fertilized and developed and before we put it back into the body. So we can diagnose what an embryo has sickle cell disease, or cystic fibrosis, or spinal muscular atrophy, or carries the BRCA gene for breast or ovarian cancer. Really remarkable stuff. And for families that were at risk for having children with these diseases, some of which literally the children die of, and there's their toddlers, we can take that risk down to zero. Right now, the biotechnology industry is investing billions of dollars into things like gene therapy which are great, and they will really help these children usually slow the disease down. It's, right now, we're not curing the disease, but we're slowing it. Ultimately, we will be able to cure it. But our feeling is, rather than develop a drug that's going to cost a million dollars each time you do it, to treat the disease, and the child already has it, why don't we prevent the family from having a child like that, and said they can have a child that doesn't have the disease? And that's what we do with in vitro fertilization. Now, for a lot of reasons, it's not being done very often right now. Most IVF is being done for infertility, which is also an honorable, very important cause of suffering, and it's a great thing to be using. But as we expand what I call the throughput through the world of IVF, we're going to create new room for disease prevention. So if you've had a family that's had a child die of spinal muscular atrophy, it's important that they know that they can, that they don't have to really roll the dice, so to speak, on a one in four chance of having another child with that, that we can take that risk down to zero by having, a, having their pregnancies through in vitro. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer to families, but it's not simple. You know, for one thing, it's 
we, we lack what I call a patient supply chain. Something as simple as you know, the patients being treated in a pediatric hematology clinic for sickle cell disease, for example, or a rare disease clinic or a neurology clinic for spinal muscular atrophy. We don't have this reflex way that those people know to tell the family that this other option exists. It's just not all that well known. So one of our jobs is simply education, letting our colleagues know that we can do this so that they start reflexively referring the patient to someone who can tell them about it. Now that someone who can tell them about it is usually a genetic counselor. In the United States, we have one genetic counselor for every 80,000 people. It's a real shortage of genetic counseling. So one of the things we're looking to do is we want to support telegenetic counseling. It's one piece of the big puzzle towards going from the fact that we have this treatment but nobody knows about it to getting people to use it a lot. Similarly, in the United States right now, there's about 45,000 new diagnoses of cancer in the 1 to 29-year-old age group per year. Most of these people have not finished having children, and most of them are going to have treatment that's going to knock out their fertility. In almost all of those cases, we can preserve their fertility if we do something in advance of their like chemotherapy or something like that. Yet we're doing very, very few cases of that. The same thing that we need to do for dis genetic disease prevention, we need to put that into place for what we call oncofertility, preserving fertility in young people with cancer so they can have normal families later on. So there's a lot of things that we're going to be able to do that we have to develop. We've got to expand the, you know, the, the process. Uh, the trans community, there's a lot of things that we're developing now that will help people in the trans community be able to have families that they're going to want to have if they do want to do that. That we just need to, you know, widen the, uh, you know, widen the throughput through the industry and make, the, make it easier to deliver and produce IVF cycles so that people have access to them. Got it. And I also wanted to ask, do you think you could share some future trends in rep reproductive medicine? Is there any tech in this field that you're excited to invest in in the future? Excited to invest in all technology. <laughs> yeah, we, are, we talked about machine learning and AI, which I think is going to have a lot to do with uh, the improvements. Uh, robotics is going to be enormous in IVF. We are looking into the basic science of female reproduction, uh, one of the things that the endocrinology of women's health has been lagging behind is simple what we call targets. You know, in oncology, we have so many different ways of affecting tumor growth. In women's health, we've still been working on the same four or five or six hormones and the same, you know, the, the, the pituitary, the hypothalamus, the ovaries, and the adrenal glands. Yeah, that's where the hormones come from. There's a lot more that we need to do on the basic science level that will lead us kind of a new age of kind of pharmaceuticals in women's health and reproductive medicine. Certainly genetics is, you know, that, that's going to be a, kind of a theme park for innovation for the next 100 years. You know, right now I'm focused on monogenic disease because I think the math works the best. And I think that if you start going into complex genetics, 
you can be led kind of into a the area where we do you know, kind of the wrong thing for the right reasons. Monogenetic disease is very straightforward, but we'll get there on the polygenic stuff as well, ultimately. So, you know, on the engineering side, we talk about uh, robotics, standardization, AI, machine learning, basic science, target discovery, uh, software development. Obviously, there's all of these things have to be wrapped up in tremendously good software. Uh, there's really just almost no platform that we're not going to find the home for in innovating you know, this field, which frankly has the bit, probably the biggest need for growth in almost any area within developed economies, certainly, within healthcare. Gotcha. And uh, just to wrap up, is there any advice you could give to potential investors and entrepreneurs out there? Same advice I give to anybody. Make yourself a really good problem solver. It's like, know how to ask the good questions, be very good and comfortable in doing data analysis. One of the things that you can never know enough statistics. It's a, uh, even, even in uh, upper levels of you know, biotechnology development, even biotechnology investing, there's a real stratification between people that are comfortable with intense data analysis and people that are easy to fool with statistics. So the better, the more comfortable you are with data analysis, the better off you are. Gotcha. Well, David, thanks so much for being here. I had a great time chatting, and I'm positive that everyone listening walked away with something new and interesting. Thank you, Aaron. It was a pleasure, uh, yeah, pleasure talking to you, and uh, anything I can do to help out the Columbia community, always happy to do so.